This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Lots of things to cover today. Uh, Shares of GameStop, we know uh, Tim rallied again today. They also fell off some of those highs. But nonetheless, we continue to see uh, this volatility, and it's playing out to some other names as well. She has been reporting nonstop on the market gyrations around GameStop and others. So let's get into it with Bloomberg News investing reporter Annie Massa. She is on the phone in New York City. Um, Annie, where are we? What do you think our audience at this point needs to know about what's going on with GameStop? GameStop and others, what's going on with Robinhood and others? So it has been an absolutely <laughs> wild week, as I'm sure anybody listening can uh, tell. I guess yesterday things really came to a head because you started to see brokerages, including Robinhood, slamming the brakes on new purchase orders for GameStop, AMC, and some of these other Reddit fueled names that have been going crazy in the past couple of days. And that drew a big backlash online from users and also from some pretty unlikely pairings of people, including AOC and Ted Cruz, both of whom criticized Robinhood for preventing people from uh, buying new shares of those companies. Tim said it yesterday. It's like strange bedfellows as a result of this. Exactly. Yeah, it didn't last very long. AOC retweeted his tweet and told him to resign. But, you know, that's a conversation (laughs) for a different day. Um, Look, I'm, I'm wondering what we learned about what Robinhood did yesterday. There was a lot of confusion about why Robinhood prevented some basic functions for its users. What did we learn in the last 24 hours? And what did Robinhood have to do in terms of getting this lifeline of a billion dollars? Yes. So when you look under the hood, what happened yesterday was there's machinery kind of underlying the market uh, that's meant to manage risk. And what happened was the central clearinghouse asked Robinhood and other brokers to effectively put up more collateral um, that day because of all the volatility, because of all the risk in the market. And Robinhood, as you mentioned, as a result, had to go out and raise kind of an emergency uh, $1 billion fundraising round from its existing investors. So there was a bit of a scramble for cash uh, amid this this really, really wild trading session. So, Annie, I guess I'm still trying to figure out is – was this a logistical operational problem in terms of clear, clearing trades and so on? Or was this traders colluding, as you know, Vince Signorella mentioned, kind of at the top of the show? Did people break the law in terms of what you're allowed to do trading? Or was it, again, an operational problem in terms of clearing these trades? Well, it's been interesting. Robinhood put out a statement yesterday trying to kind of assuage their investors and the people using their app saying, listen, this was a risk management decision that we made. Um, you don't have to worry that this, this decision was made at the behest of electronic traders uh, or anyone else. Now, that wasn't really enough to calm down the wild conspiracy theories that flew around the Internet yesterday. Um, it, it, was, it was a little too, little too late for that. But um, Robinhood did try to calm people's nerves and say, um, you know, it was a tough decision, but we had to make it uh, for, for risk management reasons. 
So what does this mean for a company like Robinhood that has really been the darling of so many retail investors and, and of course, also venture capitalists? The, the company is supposed to have an IPO soon. Yeah, zooming out, it, it really raises questions about how na- Robinhood can navigate this the hoopla of our current moment. And if it is still looking towards an IPO uh, sometime this year, it's going to have to kind of prove that it can manage all of the reputational and financial strains, frankly, that this GameStop episode has has put upon it. So regulators are getting involved, uh, as we said at the top. Um, where do you think this is going? What are you hearing from the financial community that you're talking to, to traders, to observers, to I'm sure you're going kind of to academics? You know, what are you hearing about kind of where this goes? Well, now, I mean, it's impossible to ignore this in Washington. So regulators have their Not like they don't have a full plate or anything, Annie, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Add this, add this to the list. Um, but the SEC did say today, uh, they put out a statement saying that they are watching um, the kind of insanity, not their words, but of what's been happening in the past week or so, and that they will, you know, seek to identify any uh, potential wrongdoing in, in the market. I mean, it is worth mentioning, though, that um, it's clearly in the terms of service uh, when you sign up for a Robinhood account that something like, you know, the, the broker choosing to put the brakes on um, trades in a certain security can happen. So Tim and I talked um, about this. We any problem there. Tim and I were yeah. talking about this yesterday because when we were seeing things like being shut down and, and accounts and we thought there's got to be some stuff in the in the fine print. Yeah, and indeed, last night people were tweeting images from right? from the uh, from the terms of service that are like that like highlight that. But people don't read those, of course. Um, yeah, who's ever read the terms of service? I know, just, you, you know, should you do it. Through it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, so bad. But you want to make that trade, uh, Annie? Very briefly, implications for for next week and just taking a, like a broader look at this. Uh, what are the implications for this? As we go into next week, I think the uh, key thing to watch will be how some of this, um, you know, craziness spills over to other names. We are already seeing that the chaos has spun out from just GameStop and AMC. Now, um, you know, Bitcoin is having its own, you know, an already volatile cryptocurrency is having its own wild day. And um, there are other stocks that are having uh, similar issues, too. So, I mean, you've just seen it spiral way out from GameStop into other parts of the market. So as you continue to cover this story, okay, what are the angles you want to know about? What is it that you're kind of watching for, especially as we are, you know, we're wrapping up this trading week, but we're going to get ready for a new trading week and a new month next week. What are the angles and stories and, you know, issues that you think we need to be kind of sensitive to? I think we'll absolutely have to watch the strain that some of this has put on the broader financial system. I mean, I think that it's pretty unexpected how we've already seen the stress that, you know, the mm-hmm. very like nuts and bolts of uh, financial markets were put under uh, by this whole episode. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I guess I would watch is how short sellers have been affected. I mean, we saw Citron Research put out today that they're no longer, you know, publishing short positions. That was that's huge. Huge. Yeah. Huge decision. And, um, so you know, not publishing or not taking, forward. just not publishing. Not, not yeah, I'm yeah. I mean, it's kind of upending their strategy for the past twenty years. It's it's a huge uh, turnaround for them. Well, how does this make other short sellers think about this? Because as as you know, a lot of people pointed out to Twitter uh, on Twitter today. Mark Gongloff from Bloomberg Opinion. We talked about this earlier today on Quick Take. 
Uh, short sellers have a role. They have a role in mm -hmm. exposing fraud and exposing wrongdoing at companies. And there are some great examples of short sellers doing that. I mean, we think Enron, we think Wirecard right. and more. That's right. And the format always, you know, or the, the typical format that we think of is a short seller, you know, has a short position and then does a big reveal and then the stock sells off. But, you know, as we've seen when people on Reddit plan out in the open, um, you, you know, to to kind of orchestrate a short squeeze, you know, if, if this can happen regularly, short sellers might have to rethink how they go about that that entire business. Yeah, I mean, it's just pretty amazing. And things are just have, have moved so quickly. Um, Annie, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Bloomberg News investing reporter Annie Massa. Check out all of her work on uh, the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com because um, that's a thing. Like, we talked about Hertz last year, and I think we were like, oh, but now we've seen a lot more names, and it's just the cycle has been happening much more quickly. And I think, too, like more widespread Extreme. implications. Totally. I mean, it's really impacting, certainly, uh, I guess we still have yet to gauge the impact on the overall market, right? Um, but we've definitely seen some big institutional, well-known, sophisticated investors feeling an impact as a result. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. We've got a bunch of headlines uh, that we want to mention. Um, our thanks again to J&J, &J, just catching up in terms of their vaccine news today. And I thought it was interesting what they talked about, the variant. They're upscaling already for the South African variant. That has started already. So, you know, managing the current situation, but also thinking about kind of where it's going. And yeah, we need and, that. And to that end, Carol, uh, the chief scientist telling us that shots are likely needed, quote, for the next few years, sort of thinking about it, at least in yeah. the near term, from the perspective of, of like a flu shot, because as the doctor told us, this virus is here for a while. Exactly. And we know we need multiple vaccines. They expect to start delivering shots in March. They told David Weston back in September, a billion shots in 2021. And uh, he reiterated it, Paul Stoffels, again today. So uh, interesting. But he did talk about the fittest variants will survive, which makes me a little terrified because that means the strong variants. Yeah, I don't like to hear that. But they're already working to yes. ad ad adapt their vaccine to them. All right. So that's going on. We know Mexico overtook India as the country with the third highest number of fatalities after the U.S. and Brazil. New York City can reopen indoor dining at 25 percent. That's going to happen on Valentine's Day. Here's the count, everyone. Global virus cases exceeding 101.6 million, deaths near 2.2 million, with more than 87.1 million shots given worldwide. So let's get into it, as we always like to do on our Fridays. Dr. Ian Lusbader back with us, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, back with us on the phone in New York City. Dr. Lusbader, nice to have you here. Don't know if you were able to hear too much of that J&J uh, &J conversation that we just had. What do you make of the J&J &J news today? I think overall, by the way, happy Friday, Carol yeah, and Tim. You too. Uh, thanks <laughs> happy for, Friday. Uh, always good to join you, you, you guys. So I think overall the J and J news is encouraging. I think um, uh, people initially in the stock probably suffered a little bit based on that 66% uh, effective against uh, mild and moderate disease. I think the key number is the 85% that uh, Paul, the chief scientific officer, talked about. Um, and I think uh, the fact that it can be uh, refrigerated at normal refrigeration temperatures, you know, 32, 33 degrees Fahrenheit makes it storable now in your local CVS or Walgreens pharmacy, the local doctor's office. So I think it does have the potential to be uh, distributed much more easily. The other thing that we haven't looked at but people talk about is maybe a second shot of either that vaccine, even though it's advertised, obviously, as a one shot. Some people feel 
giving an, either another shot or even a, a different vaccine might really potentiate the antibody response. So uh, if at a later point uh, another vaccine uh, is developed, it could be an mRNA or something else, that might really boost people's immunity for longer to come. So I think um, I think there's a lot of good potential there. Obviously, the, the you 95%. You sound hesitant a little yeah. bit. Are you? <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. I, I, I think the J&J shot is a very helpful uh, addition to the armamentarium. I think if we find any issues along the way, uh, booster shots or even of another vaccine may be very helpful. You know, it's talked about theoretically whether or not um, – Doing two different kinds of vaccines may even be very beneficial. At least some scientists, you know, talk about that. But overall, I think this is very good news. And the key metric, which is hospitalizations, was really, you know, that uh, 100% efficacy against hospitalizations. So it literally really doesn't get any better than 100%. Right, right. So, so, and again, this is not in, you know, we haven't looked at this at millions of people. I mean, that number may come down a bit. That was just in the study group. So overall, I think it's very good news. And I think the storage is also very good news. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, well, I, I just want to draw some distinctions here between the vaccines that are available right now, the mRNA vaccines from Moderna and, Fi- and uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, and, and this vaccine, because I think I think when we saw this headline number this morning, we, we, we've kind of been a little spoiled because we've seen numbers in terms of efficacy above 90% for the mRNA vaccines. Seeing a number like 66% um, was, I think, to a lot of people was just like not as good. But can you kind of go through the pluses and minuses of each one here? Because it seems to me the storage issues or lack thereof when it comes to the Johnson & Johnson one and the fact that it's a single shot Plus, you have that 100% figure where it prevents 100% of hospitalizations and deaths. Like, that's pretty good. I'm with you uh, 100%. So, you know, just to uh, start more at ground zero, each of these vaccines has a slightly different technology. The mRNA is really um, amazing and brand new and probably does provide us some more flexibility in modifying that if we get any uh, mutations which we're seeing. So we worry about some of the mutations because uh, some of the evidence of the UK and South Africa strains, you know, make it more contagious. So what does that mean? It does seem that some of these strains bind a little more avidly to the host cells. It also makes it seem that they have a higher uh, viral count. In other words, the way the virus may adapt is that there are fewer symptoms early on, so it gives a chance for the virus to replicate. Right. Patients don't feel sick. Yet, if they cough or sneeze, they have a much higher amount of virus in that. So these viruses, uh, you know, as Darwin, you know, adapt and, and become more effective along the way. So that's one thing that we do have to be aware of and, and concerned about. Those mRNA vaccines can um, be adjusted to some of the mutations. But I think the key metric really is how do you reduce hospitalizations? And uh, I think the J&J really meets that metric and maybe over time even uh, more effective than that 85% against a severe disease, because that's really what we worry about. And I agree. I think the storage will allow it to be more distributed. That's I a took ju- the f- go ahead. No, please go. I took the two Pfizer shots, um, you know, minimal side effects. 
Uh, I think the mRNA is great. And I think at the end of the day, whether you want, you know, the Cadillac or the or the Buick or the Mercedes, you know, these are all going to be great ways to get you to where you want to be. They're all cars, but do they all have heated seats? I'm just going to put yeah, that Yeah, I don't there, care. Ian. As long as it has a seatbelt, <laughs> give it to me. Well, that exactly. It has a seatbelt. Um, no, are you feeling more optimistic? And I, I am curious, though, Ian, I always ask you, I know Tim and I ask you, um, what kind of patients you're seeing with the virus? What kind of flows are you seeing? Because, you know, we see numbers. It feels like the numbers are coming down, uh, the cases. And so even though they're still at high levels around the country, what are you seeing though firsthand? So hospitalizations are um, up a little bit. They're okay. nowhere near uh, that we saw previously. So I think things are overall stable. Part of the problems that we're encountering really is availability of vaccine. I think we have to do better to get um, vaccines to the states and the states to get it really to the vaccine centers. So we are we're not doing as well as we should be because we really have got to just get these vaccines in people's arms in order to bend the curve. Uh, I also see a lot of patients asking me questions, you know, shall I check antibodies after I get the vaccine? Hmm. No. The commercial... um vaccine, uh, the commercial test, look for something called an anti-nucleocapsid antibody. So it detects if you've had an infection, it doesn't routinely check for the anti-spike, which is really what we're getting antibodies to. So people should not be asking about getting antibody titers after the vaccine. Most of the commercial assays will really not detect it. And people should not worry if they're negative because they're looking at the wrong thing. So I, I think we do need to do better with vaccine distribution. I think even one vaccine uh, does provide some uh, additional protection. But I do think we're going to have to wait a little while for J&J, as we say, March. There's a yeah. long way to go until March. And I think we do have to be careful. But dining, New York is going to open 25 percent. Can, can we just go there? Yeah, I was just going to go there. Is that the right thing to do? Because, you know, yeah. you talk about bending the curve. It seems like we are getting some encouraging news from the West Coast, from here in New York, where we're starting to look like we could be coming off that peak. I don't want to say we are because, you, you know, we just don't know. We can't see the future. Is now really the right time to be easing these restrictions? And, and this is Bayer de Blasio saying new COVID variants could take our progress and ver- reverse it if we don't act quickly. I think I don't know whether he was on CNBC, but like, help us out here. This doesn't make sense. So uh, this is a new pandemic. I don't think we can say that we know 100% scientifically, if you open restaurants 25% or 26% or 23%, we just don't have that precision. I do think uh, part of this is political. And I think part of this is keeping our businesses alive to a degree. We know that eating outdoors, and that's worked fairly successfully, will keep a lot of the restaurants and businesses afloat. 25% indoors does seem reasonable to me. There's always some risk that people take whenever they're with other people. But I think if there's adequate spacing and ventilation that is reasonable, every restaurant is going to have to sort of do this carefully. But my sense is we're not seeing spikes from school openings. So school certainly is reasonable for kids for a variety of reasons. And I think restaurants, if open carefully, can also work uh, even in the winter with outdoor heaters and smaller percentages and, and kind of thread the needle between keeping businesses afloat that I think we need to do uh, and keeping people safe. Yeah, I have to say that with my own daughter's school. I mean, there's an occasional case. We even see it 
certainly in our office, but it's not like all of a sudden, you know, two cases go to 10 cases go to 20. We aren't see that. So there is something, um, you know, I agree with you, Ian, that we are seeing it more manageable, I guess it feels like. I don't know. Or we're just all being smarter about wearing masks and social distancing. Well, I think that, I mean, I'm looking at you, Carol. I was going to say, I mean, it's almost like masks and physical distancing (laughs) work. I mean, it's as simple as that, right? The schools and restaurants, I think, are learning yeah. uh, pods, hybrid, and so forth. So I think they're doing a better job. And certainly, if they do have cases, they can jump on that for contacts and maybe closing down that particular class. But overall, I think it's working fairly well. And as the chief scientific officer said, we're going to have to kind of learn to deal better with this. Possibly now, we thought it would be a year. I think it's certainly looking like it may be a few years before globally we really eradicate this because. You know, vaccinating um, 8 billion people uh, is going to take some time and effort. Right. The logistics of it. What, Tim? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's this, the logistics are just uh, I, we ask you every week, Dr. Lustbader, um, expectations. Have they shifted at all for a return to normalcy, given the J&J news, uh, given that we've you know, we've we've been upping our, our vaccine rollout here in the U.S.? Yeah. I'm still optimistic by end of summer, life in in the United States uh, should return really to more normal. I think people will still, some people want to wear masks. I think that's totally reasonable to do. It's fine to be safe. Um, I think we've reduced uh, flu shots. Let's also remember flu is only about 30% effective and everyone takes a flu shot every year and we're happy with that. So, you know, let's keep it in perspective that, you know, we take the flu shots happily and they're like 30, 35% effective. You know, it varies from year to year. Right. That's a really good point. Hey, Ian, thank you so much. Uh, Take care of yourself. Have a good weekend. Dr. Ian Lasbader, clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So one of our top stories, of course, following the vaccine, but also the Reddit hordes at it again. Uh, Once again, bidding up shares of GameStop and warring with hedge funds by seeking out targets such as Siebert Financial and Twiggy Maker, Hostess Brands. It continues. SEC, meantime, is saying it's going to look into potential misconduct and review some decisions by the brokerages to curtail transactions on certain stocks. Reddit, we not Reddit, um, Robinhood, we saw curtail trading. We also saw it on Webull. So let's see what uh, the CEO of Webull has to say about all of that. Anthony Denier joins us on the phone in New York City. Hey, Anthony, good to have you here with Tim and myself. So um, why did you restrict trading? Let's just put it out there. Sure, let's get right to it. Um, thanks for having me. First yeah. of all, Carol and Tim. You bet. Uh, we, we did not have a say in the matter. Uh, we're an introducing firm. We do not operate our own clearinghouse, right? So we do not put any customer, we do not put any collateral on behalf of customers to settle all the transactions that happen on our platform. We are simply a portal. So our third party clearinghouse called me at approximately 9.58 a.m. and informed me that they may not be able to settle new buy orders in three particular names, the three most popular ones that we're seeing on Reddit. And I had to make the hard decision to send out a message to our users that we are not able to support buy orders. Why was that a decision you had to make it? Why was that a decision you had to make? It sounds like it wasn't even a decision, like you had to send that. Well, you're right. I had to send it. Exactly. I mean, I could have I could have went back to the clearinghouse and said, no, I'm going to keep the orders open. And what possibly could have happened is those trades would have failed, which would have cascaded into a much bigger problem. So maybe you're right. I did not have a 
I didn't know that decision to make. Well, so so where what is the issue that needs to be fixed here in order to 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 be able to actually make trades when 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 your users want to make trades? What needs to be fixed? Uh, well, first off, there's a two day two business day waiting period for settlement. Right, the systems that go into settling uh, transactions are very antiquated, to put it lightly. They're working on technology that was built decades ago. Right? It used to be T plus three. Now it's T plus two. There is talk that they're going to work till T plus one. That's two whole days that massive amounts of capital need to be allocated as collateral to deal with margin requirements at the DTC clearinghouse. So what needs to be done? We need to implement new technology, i.e. blockchain, which has been talked about for a long time. But when you're taking an old system and trying to bring it into the new world, that does take time. Um, so there needs to be technology, technological advances in order to ensure that this does not happen again. So that's what we're trying to get to. Like, what's the problem? Was it traders, individual retail investors, you know, doing something wrong? Or was it just a case that the infrastructure, the logistics just doesn't quite work? As you say, antiquated systems. Is that the problem? Uh, now, that's a that's a loaded question a little bit, because <laughs> on on the surface, I will say that that is the problem. Now, obviously, I think what's going on is a little deeper than just the market mechanics of trade settlement, okay. right? Now, if you if you want to talk about the story of why specific brokerages stop the new opening positions or i.e. buy orders of these specific stocks, yes, it was a market mechanic. It was a lack of capital, right, and fear of counterparty risk. Mm -hmm. That was the reason for that. But more underlying is why are these masses having a populist movement going against what you know they would call you know the institutions right the the hierarchy you know um you know the suits there's an unlevel playing field that's been going on for a long time and and, and firms like Weeble have been aggressively trying we've been trying since we started two and a half years ago open up the playing field I don't, i'm not even going to bother using the word democratization because it gets used too much we're giving access to uh not only tools but access to markets and trading strategies that retail investors had never had access to, right? But, or if they did have access to, they had to have huge amounts of capital at the firm, or they had to pay ridiculous fees, or platform fees, subscription fees, or commissions. And we removed that. And that started, uh, that started the trend. And now they want the playing field level on all levels, right? Why does, why does institutions get the ability to have a 10x leverage capability with portfolio margin, where regulation uh, well, stops a retail investor from 2x leverage? Well, you know someone would say, Forgive me, not my words or my assessment, but smart investor versus dumb investor. Do individual retail investors really understand the implications of that kind of leverage? I think they're really starting to. Okay. <laughs> and, and like I said, I not my assessment. Yeah. Um, hey, Anthony, give us some numbers uh, from, from this week. I mean, what kind of increase in action did you see on the platform? We saw some of these trading apps move to the top of the uh, iTunes app store. So obviously there was a lot of activity. Yeah, um, a lot of activity is probably putting it lightly. Um, we've, we've been very fortunate to have to be growing at a, at a very fast pace over the course of the past year and a half in particular, coinciding with uh, the whole retail trading world going to zero commission. It opened up retail investing to a whole new demographic of user. Most of those users were app-based users, right? We are an app-based platform. Our demographic tends to skew younger because we are so app-specific. Um, so we've been very fortunate to have good growth numbers now that 
this, you know, this movement has gone viral, so to speak, it's reopened that. It's the new reawakening of zero commission. It's people realizing that, hey, I can take control. I can make changes. I can improve the system. So we went from, you know, I, you know, I would look and scroll in the finance category of app, you know, of the, right. on the app store, whether it's Android or iOS. And, you know, I, I, was get, I, I put up a couple of posts. I was really excited because we made the top 10 in the finance section. Uh, we were nowhere near in the top 30 for overall apps compared to like TikTok and Zoom and Instagram. And, and now if you look for the last couple of days, it's been Robinhood number one, Weeble yeah. number two, and Reddit number three, which basically tells the story of what's going on. So bottom line, 20 seconds, it's just made you even that much more popular? It has increased our popularity. Um, it's also increased our need to make sure that customers are informed, educated. We're transparent about what we're doing, why yeah. we're doing it. Right. Um, you know, these are things that, that make a, a successful product. So you've grown 40%, 30%. Can you give us a number right. just quick? You're fishing for a number. I appreciate Yeah, we are. Num <laughs> number, number, number two in the app store. <laughs> That's a big deal. Hey, listen, Anthony, <laughs> thank you so much. And I hope we can get you back in the future. Uh, CEO of Webull, Anthony Denier, joining us on the phone in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, it's time for the drive to the close, getting ready to wrap up the trading day, the trading week. What a week, man, right? I mean, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. I, historic history making, one for the history books, one we're going to remember. Right, and it ain't over. Like, there's oh. more to come. Uh, <laughs> so let's get into uh, the market talk with uh, Tom Plum, back with us, President and Chief Investment Officer at Plum Funds, based in Madison, Wisconsin. He's joining us on the phone uh, from there. And uh, I should point out the Plum Balance Fund, consistently a top performer. It's in the 98th percentile for the past five years, meaning it beat just about all of its uh, of the other funds in that category, returning on average annually, according to Bloomberg data, um, about 15%, so a top performer. Tom, good to have you here. Tim and I have to start with the week that was. Um, listen, you you have been investing for years you know, you really think about fundamentals when you, you know, pick a name and put it in your fund. What do you make of what we've seen with GameStop, AMC, the likes, and, and the volatility that seemed to have created uh, in the marketplace? Well, you certainly have had something to talk about this week. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I remember an old saying that uh, sometimes the dog wags the tail and sometimes the tail wags the dog. And the market activity, I consider the tail. Usually people think of the fundamentals, the economics, the uh, government actions and things like that being the dog and the tail being the market. Certainly the activities and all that stuff that's been going on in the market has really made people stop thinking about a week when Apple reported, Visa reported, MasterCard reported, Apple reported, the new Biden administration had over 30 executive orders. 
all of that stuff is pushed to the backside because of this incredible activity that we've seen in GameStop and companies like that. Um, this is a brand new one. We haven't seen the group of uh, people that have been retail-oriented cause these uh, short covers. Uh, in the past, you would have other companies do that, when, especially when there was good news came out on a company that was heavily shorted. And you could see some uh, short covering rallies. But uh, this one here is, uh, you know, I've been in the business for a long, long time, and I've never seen anything like this week. Does it does it make you, Tom, think any differently about your strategy? And look, I know you're not, you know, participating in, in anything that we saw this week, but or I would I should assume that. But um, but does it make you think differently about your overall strategy at all? Well, you know, you do wonder if uh, the markets, obviously, there's people talking for years about is the market overextended. And we had a nice run last year with some, especially the companies that were in the uh, crypto or the uh, financial tech area uh, being leaders. Uh, we're still feeling that we're in an economic recovery. We're going to have this incredible volatility for a while, but that it's still going to mean that you want to own good companies that are going to participate in an expanding economy and actually have good business plans that will extend long before, long after the recovery. Well, and listen, your top holdings read, I've said this to you before, like a who's who when it comes to brands and big companies. Um, so having said that, I mean, Apple is on it. They reported earnings this week. Microsoft's reported. Uh, there were a lot of, um, you know, you talk about Visa and MasterCard. I mean, a lot of these have reported. Um, anything that you got fundamentally from any of these companies that made you, you know, think about either adding or you know, change the fundamental story for you on them? I'm guessing not. Well, no, I think that what you had last year were that there were some very, very good companies that uh, continue to grow, even though there's all these challenges that you think might have eliminated, especially when you look at the earnings for the overall S&P, uh, that it was going to be a very, very tough year. But there is a lot of companies that had growth, and some of the growth that we've talked about in the past has been accelerated by the pandemic, and those trends have continued. You know, if you take, a, for example, a company like MasterCard, which besides uh, being involved in a lot of uh, cryptocurrency and things now that are pretty exciting, you know, they have uh, had... 51% uh, now, they say, of uh, people in the United States use contactless payments in one form or another. It's up 100% year over year. Yeah. Those trends are going to continue. They're going to recover with the economy. A company like MasterCard was hurt last year by business T&A expense going down, by travel going down, by restaurants, hospitality going down. But the uh, business of buying online uh, offset a lot of that, and they're still such a well-managed company that they were very profitable, even if profits were down last year. Hey, what did you make, Tom, of Apple's earnings in its most recent quarter? A hundred, more than a hundred hundred billion dollar quarter, uh, and I know that uh, Apple is uh, one of your top holdings. Well, you know, Apple's a, a great example. They've uh, for quite a while now. It's been. Uh, sell shortly on news after they report because they've been reporting very good earnings growth the last uh, four quarters 
but they also uh, give you this cautionary uh, appraisal of what might happen in the future. They're being a little concerned. And so the stock has typically sold off a little bit after they report. But I think after that's digested, uh, people are going to look at this company as probably the best benefactor of the uh, beneficiary of the 5G rollout. Uh, the new generations are going to be strong for them. And uh, they've modified their model to include much more recurring revenue from service and and uh, other programs that go through their app store. Right. So I, I think people are going to look at it a couple of weeks from now. They're going to digest. Uh, it had quite a run last year. But right. It, but then I think it's still going to be in that same trend. Right, and accessories and services, right? We saw certainly some pickups mm-hmm. there. Hey, Tom, thank you so much. Have a good weekend. Tom Plum, President and Chief Investment Officer at Plum Funds, joining us on the phone from Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.